MSW Media. is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hello and welcome everybody to episode 17 of Clean Up on Aisle 45, the podcast about rebuilding our democratic institutions after having suffered through, well, you know, the former guy. Uh, I'm A.G. And I'm Andrew Torres. And we have a fantastic show for you today. We're talking right wing extremism with someone who knows firsthand, Rachel Vindman. I'm super excited about that. (laughs) Yes, she definitely does know firsthand. But before we get there, we have to thank our new patrons. So thanks. Thanks to A.B., to Judy Jehoda, Robin Kessler, Bongo Bot, uh, Arthur Ruckel, and a country member. I like the country member. That's nice. <laughs> I, I, you'll, you'll see I, I took the good ones this week. Uh, thank you to Heather Fliss, Ben Smith. The Hayward Education Association is the greatest union of all time. Sure. And, of course, thank you to Attorney General's Amicus Curiae's and Writ of Mandamus. Okay. All right. You, you had your fun with incorrect plurals. That I, I feel worse about that than Haywood Jabloni. So. <laughs> <laughs> that really that made, that's, makes me that just hurt I know. We just, right. just oh, the, the grammar of it all. Okay. Ugh. So for the, I would say, what are you, a Republican? But Republicans don't even know what those three things are, so they would never use them in conversation. So uh, for this first segment, uh, as we are recording this, the Biden administration has announced it will provide protections against discrimination in health care based on gender identity and sexual orientation, reversing the former guy's policy. This new interpretation pertains to healthcare providers and other organizations that receive federal funding from the Department of Health and Human Services. So, what exactly happened? Take us on a journey, <laughs> won't you, uh, Mr. Torres? Oh, sure. So, look, um, I love, I, obviously, this is very, very important for us to cover, um, but it, it's also indicative of what we're going to see over the next few months, right? It's it's kind of wave two in executive actions, right? So uh, on, on day one, week one, right, the Biden administration came in and out of the gate, uh, we're ready to go with executive orders, right? Both affirmative orders doing stuff like mask mandates in the civil service, right? Uh, but also negative orders. We and we covered all these on on episode one, right? But but negative orders repealing the horrible stuff that Trump did. Uh, but one of the reasons that we have the 
long-running and much-beloved D-coming-and-going segment <laughs> um, is that, right, that, look, there's the hard work of undoing the rules and regulations and fact-finding made by administrative agencies over the past four years that have been st- staffed with industry loyalists and Trump toadies, right? You you can't just undo that via an executive order, right? You have to follow the Administrative Procedure Act, and that takes time. Otherwise, um, it will get challenged in the court, and the court will say, it's it's not a high bar, right? Um, but they'll say, you haven't done any actual fact-finding here. Uh, get out of here, and we'll toss out your new rule or your guidance. Yeah. And you said, uh, or, you know, as, as, as we know, when <laughs> Trump tried to enact the Muslim ban, yep. for example, that's a very good example of not doing your fact finding. They uh, call it what a, a capricious and arbitrary, uh, or is it arbitrary and capricious? I don't know, but there's, there's specific language molded around that. So, um, you know, that, that's what what happens when you don't. And, you know, we talked about this. You've talked about it on OA. I've talked about it on The Beans. He can't just executive order his way to stuff. It's going to get blocked. It's going to get sued and blocked. Yep. Um, so now this this particular action here uh, in now that we've we've ushered in the new people in the comings and going segment <laughs> in the administration. Uh, this involves the Affordable Care Act, specifically Section 1557, which says that an individual, quote, shall not be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any health program or activity, any part of which is receiving federal funds on the grounds prohibited in the Age Discrimination Act of 1975 or Title IX of the Education Act or Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And that's kind of vague. <laughs> so the Obama administration said, well, all right, we're going to interpret it. This is what we're going to do as this administration. We're going to interpret that guidance in 2016 the, uh, that it confirms, yes, if you're a health care provider and you take a single dollar in federal funds, you can't refuse to cover gender transition services. Um, so, you know, that's sort of the, the idea here. That, and that was their interpretation of the law. And and that matters, right? Yeah. So look, um, I mean, you've you've described that exactly correctly, right? Where there are interstices or gaps in uh, laws that are enacted by Congress, it falls to the agency that enforces it here, the Department of Health and Human Services, to issue guidance as to how to interpret that law over the areas that have been delegated to that agency, right? Um, and and I, I want to be as fair as I can because the challenge that came here was raised by the extreme religious right and bankrolled by, you know, the the monsters at Alliance Defending Freedom. And, and so what these religious institutions said was, look, um, the law says uh, on the grounds prohibited including uh, you know, various things, including Title IX, right? And you've already given us a blanket exception under Title IX at our make-pretend schools like Liberty University uh, that we don't really have to follow any of this guidance when it comes to uh, uh, gender identity and uh, and sexual orientation, um, you know, because we hate gay people. And, um, and uh, by this point, right, the Obama administration said, uh, n- no, like we're not— wait, they went through the fact finding. They said, 
they they had a notice and comment period. They said, thank you, Jerry Falwell, for opining in here. Um, but uh, no, uh, um, that the fact that you have an exception under Title IX under a different uh, rulemaking doesn't mean you're going to get one here. And when we go back and look at the plain language of the statute, it seems really, really clear that this provision uh, was meant to protect LGBTQ plus individuals from discrimination. Um, and uh, and and so that was the 2016 rule. And of course, um, that was promulgated in 2016. The new guy came in in 2017. Um, this became I mean, trans people became, you know, uh, uh, the 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 battleground right in the new culture wars under the trump administration um they couldn't just say we hate trans people they had to say it's super costly and uh, you know whatever i I, um and and again uh ag as you alluded to because of their incompetence it took them until june of 2020 to come up with a trump final hhs rule that said um well, it, it, it rather creatively interpreted that Section 1557 that you read as somehow not protecting gender identity. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah. But, but what's cool in this particular situation is that the Biden administration, while they can make their own interpretation of these rules for policy, they have kind of a, a pretty good uh, <laughs> sort of uh, backing here, because three weeks after that happened, three weeks after their final rule that took them forever to write, the Supreme Court issued a very surprising decision. I was surprised. Yeah. You were surprised. We were surprised. Uh, in the in the Bostock Clayton County case, interpreting Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, saying the language prohibiting discrimination on the basis of sex as apply it applies, they said to sexual orientation and gender identity because, duh, <laughs> of course it does. Uh, and that seemed to definitively foreclose on the Trump administration's interpretation of that rule. Um, and and didn't a court issue an injunction preventing it from going into effect? Yeah, that that's exactly right. So so based on the Bostock rule. Um, uh, there were a bunch of lawsuits uh, that went into federal court seeking an injunction to prevent that HHS rule from going into effect. Um, two separate federal courts blocked parts of the rule. OK, and and again, a single federal court can issue a nationwide injunction, as you well know, as our listeners well know. Um, so courts in New York and D.C. Uh, blocked the provisions that excluded sex stereotyping. Like, I mean, it was a, a truly gross part of that rule. Um, the uh, New York court still has before it, it is still in uh, the, the fact finding stage um, uh, questions of whether to issue uh, a permanent injunction blocking the rest of the rule. Um, and so uh, all of that is still kind of up in the air, right? So yes, you had a TRO, uh, you had preliminary injunctive relief, um, but um there, there's still a lot of lawsuits pending. And so today, what the Biden administration announced that it was doing was overturning, scrapping that June 2020 rule and going back to the original Obama 2016 guidance, which explicitly protects trans rights. It explicitly includes sexual orientation, gender identity and sex stereotyping. Um, and, and, and and that I mean, I haven't explained that, but I mean, that it, it's pretty self-explanatory, like there are a large number of cases from the 1980s that are not explicitly um, sexual orientation cases, but are um, 
you know, women who were fired from their jobs for, you know, not being, quote, feminine enough. Um, and and I say it that way because I actually don't know of any cases to the contrary. Right. Like, I don't know, um, you know, men who were terminated. I'm sure I'm sure it's happened. Uh, but but the um, the landmark cases tend to be, you know, women who were just you know why don't why don't you smile more and mm. wear some more dresses and you know why why don't you have uh, like oh look at her with all the tattoos and the triumph motorcycle i'm not speaking from experience <laughs> or anything i thought i thought you might have a view on that <laughs> <laughs> now i have a quick question mm. for you does this mean now that he's overturned that rule that all these cases that are sort of floating around there up in the air about this does that mean that the our department of justice Merrick Garland can file uh, a document in court saying uh, we we request you dismiss these cases as moot because it's no longer under that particular issue and then you know maybe go then and then if it's the bad guys would have to refile all over again if they want yeah to. that is that is exactly what I anticipate that will happen and and I suspect that um, after there was a, 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 a after Biden won, I was, I was trying to come up with a euphemism for transition. And I don't know. Biden won. I'm happy about that. We we call the other guy the other guy. But like, God damn it, I'm happy Biden won. Anyway, um, after he won, I, I imagine that in those cases, um, there, there were probably voluntary stays that were entered that said, look, like we're reviewing this. We don't know if we want to defend this in court or not anyway. Um, and, you know, give us some time and, and, and look, it will be up to the plaintiffs in those cases to decide, right? Like we've, we, we talked about this, um, with, uh, with some of the border cases, right? That like the ACLU, you know, um, in, in some of the cases they've, uh, said, we think the Biden administration has undone this in good faith. And so, you know, we're prepared to drop it. They're going to, they're no longer going to defend the policy. Uh, but the Biden administration is still defending the so-called, you know, Section 42 deportations. Um, and so, you know, so it will be up to the plaintiffs to decide what to do. I, I suspect you are correct on that. And then what will happen is the Alliance Defending Freedom and other religious bigot groups are going to run to, you know, the Western District of Texas tomorrow uh, and move for an injunctive, <laughs> move for injunctive relief, blocking the Obama administration from repealing the 2020 rules. So, you know, with the Biden administration, the Biden administration. Yeah, right. <laughs> that, was a, that was a little uh, uh, malapropism. <laughs> no, leave it in. We're not going to edit that out. <laughs> it's, it reverted to the Obama era rule that was what i was thinking i uh -huh. yeah. mm -hmm. sure uh anyway that is this is such incredible yeah. this is incredible news it, it was kind of expected uh i but you know there was there was a lot going on uh, a couple weeks ago when biden had his address to the joint session of congress and he said i have your back transgender people i have your back and everyone was like, yeah, but what do you mean by that? Be specific. And they're like, well, I'm not going to tell you yet. And they're like, all right, well, here it is. And and it's and it's uh, two weeks later, less than two weeks later. So, you know, you got to be happy with that. I am. Yep. Yep. Me too. All right, everybody. We'll be right back. We've got more stuff coming up ahead, including that wonderful interview with Rachel Vindman. <laughs> We're going to talk about uh, some comings and goings. We're also going to talk about um, some new reform that may be coming in the form of taking commanders out of the chain of command and dis deciding whether or not to prosecute uh, sexual assault in the military. Stay with us. 
Hey everybody, it's AG for Clean Up on Aisle 45. Mental Health Awareness Month is a worthy thing to celebrate, but it shouldn't be our focus just for May. It's important to be working on your mental health all year long. The positive effects of therapy will create lasting change in all areas of your life, in your relationships, in your career, and your overall happiness. A therapist can help you identify the habits and patterns that might be holding you back and how to move forward in the right direction. I wholeheartedly recommend Talkspace for therapy. Uh, To me, therapy is a key component of self-care, self-improvement, and having a fulfilling and happy life. And Talkspace makes it so easy. You can sign up online and start therapy the same day. And you can text video or send voice messages to your licensed therapist. So it's incredibly convenient to have virtual sessions from the comfort of your home. Talkspace is a fraction of the cost of in-person therapy. Instead of waiting for an appointment, you can send unlimited messages to your therapist 24-7 and they'll engage with you daily, five days a week. Talkspace has thousands of licensed therapists with years of experience in over 40 specialties, including depression, anxiety, substance abuse, trauma, anger management, relationship issues, food and eating, so much more. Talkspace is secure and private using the latest end-to-end bank-grade encryption technology to store client information and complying with the latest HIPAA regulations. As a listener of the podcast, you'll get $100 off your first month with Talkspace. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com and make sure to use the code CLEANUP, all one word, to get $100 off your first month and show your support for the show. That's CLEANUP at Talkspace.com. All right, everybody, welcome back. Uh, About a decade ago, actually about eight years ago, uh, I filmed an interview for the Oscar-nominated documentary The Invisible War, which was about military sexual trauma. It was Amy Jeering and Kirby Dick. And since that time, Kirsten Gillibrand has been working tirelessly with survivors and members of Congress to change the way in which the military decides which sexual assault cases are prosecuted. She's been on this this entire time. Yeah, and and, and don't don't be modest here. This is uh, an issue that, that you care deeply about, are an expert about. Uh, you've gone on MSNBC and uh, served as an expert. Um, so, you know, we're, we're really fortunate. I'm really fortunate uh, to have you uh, here in the host chair uh, being able to talk about it. Um, my understanding of the problem is that um, when we are talking about uh, sexual harassment and sexual assault in the military, um, unit commanders are the ones who get to decide, right? They have the prosecutorial discretion in these cases. And it seems like a pretty obvious conflict of interest um, in, in a bunch of ways, right? Like, so, so first um, it, it, if the commander, right, is in the chain of command with the perpetrator, that seems like a, a pretty hefty deterrent. And, and, and again, these are cases for which there is such a tremendous social deterrent to begin with, right? It, 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 it's just, we, we do not need institutional roadblocks. So uh, so there's number one, the chain of command issue. Um, and, and second, right, there is the, uh, the, the, the promotion issue, right? Like if a commander looks like right there's a high number of sexual assaults in your unit right that reflects bad instead of reflecting well it reflects badly you know so i my understanding you know and 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 please like speak to 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 your experiences here that like it, it just seems like the system is set up to 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 really discourage survivors from 
uh, from coming forward. Yeah, that's right. They'll they'll tend to brush these under the rug because they don't want a high number of assaults on in their yeah. unit. Because, like you said, that can deter that can that can reflect poorly on them uh, in the promotion process. But you know, in my case, they would actually terrorize you oh. if you tried to report it. Uh, you know, they they would uh, you know they would put like when I went to the the station to report it. They put me in an interrogation room and interrogated me with the think of the metal pendant light and the metal desk. And, you know, they would they would they start in with, you know, were you drinking? Were you flirting? What were you wearing? Like, I'm wearing my dungarees. I look like I'm from the fucking set of a, a weird ABBA uh navy video like i'm it's not it's the least sexy thing you could possibly wear uh i mean some people might be into it not shaming you <laughs> but trust me uh the dungarees in the 90s were so you know they, what were you wearing were you wearing do you have a boyfriend uh you know just all those sort of uh questions and then the, the bring a second guy in to tell you all of the perils of reporting a false rape <sighs> Uh, and they'll tell you that, you know, you could be court-martialed, you could be uh, broken down, lose your school, lose your rate, lose your signing bonus, lose your rank, you could be discharged dishonorably, you could lose all your benefits, lose your GI Bill, et cetera, et cetera. They, they, say, they say all that to you explicitly? They certainly do. Oh, and gosh. And you feel very alone and yeah. insane and gaslit uh, at I, first, I but it— because it wasn't until that movie came out, they they masterfully put me in a montage of m- several other people who had the exact same things said to them in the with the exact same verbiage. So it was almost like a policy. Uh, but yeah, they would sweep it all under the rug. Uh, and so for the past decade, the military has because you know Kirsten Gillibrand was like, we have to change this, and the, and Republicans and conservatives and and military people were like, no, the commanders are in charge. So what they decided to do is have sexual assault and rape prevention programs to try to curb sexual assaults and harassment. But the programs are fucking stupid. Pardon my French. They're rife with victim blaming. They've been wholly ineffective. Uh, I remember one of the initiatives being Ask Her When She's Sober. And they had posters of that up all over base. Um, another one was the buddy system, the buddy program. Uh, and they had training for that. And we would watch this video where a woman would be walking home to her barracks at night and be attacked and assaulted. And then when she went to report it, the co- the commander was like, did you have your buddy with you, though? Like that kind of thing. <sighs> Why weren't you with your buddy? You know, and I'm like, what? And then now they have ne- just as recently as this year, they were doing augmented reality training, basically putting people in assault situations and just to teach them how to react properly to it, uh, which is traumatic in and of itself. It's been absolutely ridiculous and idiotic. And the people who were put in charge of it, if you watch the movie, the invisible war are just a holes of the, of the highest level. Um, and these, these sexual assault and rape prevention programs are, they're miserable and they have failed. I, I, I am not surprised that none of that nonsense worked. It, it, so, from my perspective, having not been there and, and, and not lived through it, I, I can look to the data, right? And I see in 2018 that there were 7,825 reported incidents of sexual assault in the military. That's just the ones that were reported. Uh, and then 
the number of assaults increased by 3% in 2019, but the rate of convictions stayed the same at 7%. Yeah, and I mean, let's just, if you look at that, only 7% are being convicted. Um, But... Dun, 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 dun. Here comes Lloyd Austin. He was appointed as Secretary of Defense. You heard about it here in our comings and goings section. Uh, his first his first official act as Secretary of Defense was to assemble a commission to study the problem of sexual assault and rape in the military. And in response, lawmakers on the Hill are finally seeing bipartisan support to actually pass legislation because that's what's required here. Uh, to change the law and take the commanders out of the equation. Yeah. Um. So. This is uh, a bipartisan effort between, uh, as you point out, Kirsten Gillibrand, who who really, I mean, has been on this issue um, for as long as I can remember. Um, And uh, and Iowa Republican Senator Joni Ernst, um, who have uh, come together with legislation uh, that they said would, for the first time, move cases out of the chain of command and to trained military prosecutors. So they would remain under military oversight, um, but at least they would be handled by criminal justice attorneys with relevant expertise rather than commanders who have the conflicts of interest we talked about. And also, I mean, you know, zero legal training. Right yeah, now. right. Uh, so when, you know, for uh, just to give you an example, when I went to report my rape, first thing is, OK, get a rape kit and then we'll be in touch. Right. No, that's not how it went at all. So I wasn't even able to give any evidence in, in the case. Ugh. So and, and you know, that's must have just been the kind of, you know, and, and granted, I was one of the first women in the nuclear program, so they didn't really have any experience with it anyway. But that's why you need these experienced people uh, to take to take control of this. Um, and in a story this week from NPR, Gillibrand has said she and Ernst have well over the 60 votes necessary to pass the new legislation in the Senate. Gillibrand said that in addition to Ernst's endorsement, the legislation has gained momentum through uh, the support of past holdouts from both sides of the aisle and uh, breakthroughs among current and former top military officials, including General Milley, mm-hmm. chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mullen, who I think was a Bush and Obama chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Uh, these people previously opposed it. Yeah. Um, and Ernst had previously said she was torn on the issue. Uh, yeah. And, and again, uh, no fans of Joni Ernst here on this podcast. But but look, a- a- after looking at years with, uh, to, to put it mildly, no improvement in the number of assault cases, Ernst said it was time for a new approach. And perhaps relevantly, Ernst is herself a survivor of military sexual trauma. She's a former commander in the Army Reserve, and her daughter was a cadet at West Point and apparently uh, had had some issues. And I think that might have been what pushed her over the edge, right? Um, So it's until you, it's with, you know, with Republicans until until it happens to you or your own. Yep. You know, it's sort of a a non-issue. But But, um, but, I mean, good on Gillibrand for, you know, being able to find, uh, uh, you know, an ally, yeah. yeah, an ally across the aisle. Right. Yeah. Uh, now, my only issue with this proposed legislation 
uh, is that when Gillibrand first set out on this mission, mm-hmm. right after uh, my movie came out, she, well, not my movie, the movie I was in, uh, she wanted to bring civilian oversight mm. to bear on the decision to prosecute the cases. They wanted to go out to a civilian uh, group, but you know, nonpartisan, whatever, and and to have them, and and that's what I wanted too. But this legislation called the Military Justice Improvement and Increasing Prevention Act, would create essentially a state-of-the-art district attorney's office within the Department of Defense. So it kind of would have this, uh, you know, like you said, it's got at least uh, experts in the law uh, there. And I'm assuming that they could, you know, just because they're the DOD doesn't mean they can't hire civilians and make them DOD, (laughs) you know, to have to have some, uh, you know, rape response experts, et cetera, uh, in in that unit. Uh, But here's the thing, too. This isn't just going to be for military sexual assault in this legislation. They want to bring in uh, murder, manslaughter, child endangerment, child pornography, and negligent homicide, to name a few, leaving just the misdemeanors and stuff for the to for the uh, commanders to have to to decide. And this is probably a huge relief for commanders as well because it takes it out off of their plate uh, for either accountability or not. And I, if I were a commander, I would personally want that. Yeah, no that that makes sense to me. And and I, I think. Based on what you were saying, right, like it would not be a surprise if bipartisan legislation doesn't go nearly as far as you or I would like it to go. Um, But making some progress, right, is certainly better than the legacy of doing nothing. It's certainly better than, you know, ask her when she's sober. Well, that's the thing, right? (laughs) That was the bipartisan uh, decision back eight years ago. Well, let's try the assault prevention programs and see how it goes. And, you know, know, we all had concerns that it wouldn't be enough. And I have those same concerns now. And I, I, I... think it wouldn't be as good as if we had civilians involved but you know and i hate to be better than nothing i hate to better than nothing this but uh gillibrand is all for this it it we don't want the perfect to be the enemy of the good but there should be zero fucking sexual assaults in the military Uh, yes yes so i i'll i i was gonna say i would take my guidance from from senator gillibrand but i i will amend that and say i will take my guidance from ag and senator gillibrand um it it, that's that's my intuition as well is that you know um you know it 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 falls into half a loaf or quarter of a loaf uh at least we're sort of moving in the right direction an interesting group of co-sponsors right Joni ernst uh chuck grassley uh, good old Susan Collins is concerned about this. Uh, Shelley Moore Capito of West Virginia. Uh, Mike Braun of Indiana. Rand Paul. Cynthia Loomis. Uh, Tommy Tuberville. I got go figure on that one. Bill Cassidy of Louisiana. And my good friend Ted Cruz have all signed on as co-sponsors. Um, previous uh, Democrats who uh, had opposed um any sort of reform, including Tim Kaine and Mark Warner, uh, are also on board. So um, looks like this is going to pass, and um, and you know we'll 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 have to see if it makes a difference. Yeah, I hope so. I th- I feel like the the wave of new support is coming directly from the fact that ask her when she's sober didn't actually work. <sighs> Shocker. So 
Yeah, we're all super shocked. But I am kind of tired of the reactionary politics. And I can see us 10 years from now saying we still haven't made enough of a dent because we didn't get civilians involved like we've been wanting since 2013. Yeah, yeah. No, and look, um, like that is I, I, I feel like it's analogous to, you know, on, on OA, we talked about some of the police reform and and the police reform that passed in Maryland. One of the things that was crucial was forming community police boards uh, that would then get a representative. So it didn't completely take it out uh, from review within the police department, but it said instead of uh, you know, the chain of command in police department, uh, that those hearings would be overseen by one representative from the police department, one retired or current sitting judge and one member of the community. And and so maybe, you know, getting a foot in the door, maybe something like that of uh, bringing in alternative voices can get us kind of on the road to to getting this under uh, civilian control, because I, I, I mean, I, I certainly agree with you. On yeah. That. Well, uh, here's some good news, though. We're about to talk to Rachel Vindman, so I'm really excited about that. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and I feel like the sooner we go to break, the sooner All we right. get to talk to Rachel. So I'm going to do that Done. right now. Everybody, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's AG, and this portion of Cleanup on Aisle 45 is brought to you by Lucy Nicotine, a company founded by Caltech scientists and former smokers looking for a better and cleaner nicotine alternative. Finally, tobacco alternatives that don't suck. Lucy was researched and developed for three years to be made for people, not patients. Lucy has created a nicotine gum with four milligrams of nicotine that comes in three flavors, wintergreen, cinnamon, and pomegranate, as well as a lozenge with four milligrams of nicotine in cherry ice flavor. Each and every flavor tastes great, and Lucy is convenient and discreet to use. Enjoy Lucy anywhere, on flights, at work, or on the go, or even in the gym. One of my best friends has struggled with cigarettes for years, and I recently recommended trying Lucy, and she loves it, especially the wintergreen flavor. It's 2021, so get rid of your cigarettes, unplug your vape, throw out your dip, and get some Lucy nicotine gum or lozenges. This is the real deal. A subscription to Lucy comes directly to your door each month. It's so simple, you don't have to leave your house. Because Lucy has deliveries down. Cleanup on aisle 45 listeners, go to lucy.com and use promo code CLEANUP on one word to get 20% off all products on your first order, including gum or lozenges. That's lucy.co and use promo code CLEANUP at checkout. Also, I have to give this disclaimer. Warning, this product contains nicotine derived from tobacco. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Lucy.co and be sure to use promo code CLEANUP. Everybody, welcome back to Clean Up on Aisle 45. We are honored to be joined today uh, by, she goes by Natsack Hobbyist on Twitter. <laughs> and uh, you, you might recognize her last name. She happens to, uh, you know, share some ties with Alexander Vindman from Impeachment 1.0. Please welcome Rachel Vindman. Rachel, it's great to have you. Thank you. It's so great to be here. This is a, a great new podcast and um, an appropriate one. I love we got to clean this up. It's not easy. <laughs> so it's really just such a fabulous name and a good podcast as well. Oh, well, well, thank you so much. It's uh, I, we, we really appreciate you coming on the show. And uh, and it is fantastic on my end to, to finally uh, meet you face to face after uh, hearing you on on AG's other program and uh, and, and reading, you know, what you've written online. Um, so. Speaking of cleaning up on aisle 45, let's let's dive into it. All of our impartial intelligence assessments over the past, I don't know, 
two decades have indicated that the primary domestic terror threat in the United States is due to right wing extremism. Um, the previous administration seemed to think that that was a feature and not a bug. Um, but uh, but we are learning today uh, news breaking in multiple sources that the Biden administration is going to uh, release its strategy for fighting domestic terrorism and that that will focus on uh white supremacy and uh, and right-wing groups um what what do you what do you think that that is is that that approach is going to entail well for one thing i don't find these people to be patriots <laughs> which is what they've been called repeatedly that is such a perversion and uh you know i it just it couldn't be further from the truth and we've got to you know correct that narrative i don't think this is necessarily going to do that but i would really like you know to to push back really hard on that. And I'm sure all your listeners already know that, but um, you know, I think we, they need to know that the government is watching. So they use this term, um, the, the government is watching us. The government is coming to get us. And this is what they say. And, you know, incidentally, they use that talking point in order to make people okay with the other nonsense that they're doing. <laughs> so people like Trump and the Trump administration was just fine keeping them focused on this idea on we're going to save you and we're going to keep these people, the other government, from coming to get you because it made them okay with all the other nonsense because Trump was the only person that could save us. He was the only person that could do it that was fighting back. And, you know, I... It's, it can't just be words. It has to be actions. But there ha I hope that there are some really, you know, they put in place some things that these people will, um, you know, these right-wing extremists will see this can actually hurt them. This can get them where it hurts. And whether it's financially, whether it's just pushing back on the rhetoric that they're allowed to, you know, just spew unchecked. That's not going to be okay. That's going to get you on a watch list, and that's going to mean something. Like, maybe you can't fly if you were there on January 6th or whatever. That's a real thing. And I think, you know, we've seen in, in media locations, um, you know, social media, other places where these people are, you know, unfortunately allowed to talk, <laughs> that that's, that's been a problem for them. Um, the flying thing has been a problem. That's a mm. very simple thing. That's a really, really good point. Yeah, it, it really is. And I'm also wondering, too, if, if the Department of Justice in their investigations into the insurrection, uh, especially the plea agreements with some of the the higher ups, including Proud Boys and Oath Keepers, the ones that are be being charged with seditious conspiracy or those are the charges they're pursuing. If if the Department of Justice can work sort of hand in hand with the Department of Homeland Security and maybe this group and maybe they have been working with this group because this group, I'll just I'll say they, they were commissioned on Biden's second day in office mm -hmm. to research domestic violent extremism, right wing extremism. And, uh, our, you know, our former guest and friend Josh Geltzer was put uh, on that uh, group, that work group, to, to look into it. And this is the report that's going to be released in the coming weeks is their findings. Um, but, yeah, I wonder to what extent they're working with uh, the Department of Justice, because a lot of these plea agreements might not be about, you know, rolling on Roger Stone. They might be about gathering intelligence about the recruitment and funding 
uh, of these organizations. And, and I, w- I would really like to see the Department of Homeland Security and this commission, this DVE, Domestic Violent Extremism Commission, work hand in hand with the Department of Justice and, and, and the FBI to share that intelligence. I think that, that it's very important. I mean, you know, after after 9-11, we, we put the office of DNI, uh, the Office of Director of National Intelligence, in, in effect because we were having some sort of communication breakdowns between the different agencies. So I'm hoping that they can have the foresight to, to not run these separately for 10 years and then decide we need someone to help coordinate it. No, I, I, I completely agree. I I think part of the problem in countering these groups has been, you know, maybe not sharing information and not seeing its totality and taking it as seriously. So a good thing about the insurrection was we see the capability. I think you also see the people um, who kind of, if you will, did get caught up in the moment. And when I say that, I don't mean that they are innocent in any way, but I also think they're not, they didn't wake up and, you know, want to really overthrow the government. They were there and they were absolutely part of it. And there are consequences to those actions, but there's a lot of people like that and they can offer a tremendous amount of intelligence, um, you know, to really see how this works. And, you know, I think we say it all the time, but in the way the government has, you know, that we've handled these things in the past, we have to be a lot more proactive now because what we have is a situation with the internet and it's not just, I mean, it's the regular internet, it's Facebook, it's Twitter, Parler, et cetera. It's also the dark web. So these people are finding each other. I mean, people of like minds find each other on the internet. I mean, I might find someone who likes to make sourdough bread. That was a very big <laughs> thing last year. So, I mean, everyone can find each other and that's great. And you can share your tips. But, you know, we have to make sure that, the, you know, you can live your whole life around the block from someone who was in, you know, two people who were white supremacists and they never even met or knew each other because it wasn't acceptable to talk about it. Now it's so much easier for people to connect for good reasons and bad reasons. And we have to rethink the speed at which we deal with these issues. And I, we can see it now with, you know, the violence against Asian Americans. I mean, come on. It just gets out of control very, very quickly when something is spread online. And they, they're learning. I think the government is learning. And, and like you, that was one of my favorite things that wasn't so much t- so talked about. But on the second day is off in office when President Biden, you know, established this uh, this position and someone who's worked at the NSC and really has the ability, who knows how to, you know, navigate the interagency process and to use it for good. So we can use all those agencies together um, to really have some, I think, immediate effects, I hope. Yeah. And Andrew, speaking of immediate effects, didn't uh, I I read today uh, that the Department of Homeland Security is taking steps sort of in parallel with this commission that Biden has put together to help combat uh, some of this? And and they have got some goals. What do you know about that? Yeah, that that's right. So. One of the real obstacles in moving forward in a in a concrete way uh, is that it requires 
uh, you know, an act of Congress to designate a specific group as a terrorist group, right? So um, we have no idea. Well, <laughs> I was going to say we have no idea. We have a pretty good idea what the Senate is going to do. Um, <laughs> and, you know, that mm. is a wink and nod towards right-wing extremism. And so, you know, you, you really have to... Um, kind of coordinate across uh, the entire executive branch. So uh, DHS has done its own fact-finding, right? Um, they have warned uh, that, um, you know, particular... I mean, I think there, there are a couple of really interesting things here that that dovetail with um, Rachel's last answer and your last question, right? Which is coordinating with the information uh, that we have as a result of the January 6th insurrection. So, you know, one of the things that that has struck me that um, I, I'm, I'm curious uh, if if Rachel has any insight uh, with, with respect to is the degree to which these folks, uh, Oath Keepers, Proud Boys, Three Percenters, are embedded in our local police, our local governments. Um, and, you know, and, and so, you know, you, you've you've talked about um and I, and i and i thought it was a really uh i thought it was really uh, perceptive in in talking about the the threat of being on the no fly list i'm curious if you know what what other tactics may be available at the you know prior to legislative level um you know towards just exposing folks who are you know beat cops and members of state legislatures and, you know, the, the, the people who are supposed to be keeping us safe from right wing extremists. Border Patrol, yeah. ICE, yeah. veterans, military. Yeah, uh, exactly. I mean, they're they're everywhere. There's teachers, there's lawyers. And yeah, and I and I, I'm interested to, to hear your insights on that, too. And especially uh, in light of, of the Department of Homeland Security now wanting to develop a tool to be able to uh to be able to track this and have a warning system. They want to be able to put out an early warning system uh, for, for these kinds of attacks. Yeah, I mean, I will say I, I am not for doxing anyone. <laughs> I am for exposing if there is to the right people. So, and that would include, I think, if someone is an educator, if someone is the member of a police department, um, or any other agency, I think raising that issue to their um, you know, their supervisor, who whoever it is, and saying, "Okay, you know, this is a country. We can have our own beliefs. Everyone can believe what they want. If you're acting on them in an illegal way, if you're discriminating against them, you know, you're kind of adding yourself as already having these these ideas. So now, you know, you're going to be watched more closely, and that's just how it is." People would be smarter. Right. Like if banks. Yes, they'd be smarter to be quiet about it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Make it embarrassing again. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think you should. I think that is a very, actually a very effective tool is just to make it embarrassing again, to make it. I mean, I, I've, I've told the story. So I um, wanted to hire someone to uh, a professional organizer. So um, I contacted someone. I didn't hear back from them but it was just reaching out on their website. They live very close to us. And then um, I called and she actually answered the phone. I spoke to her and she said, I will not work for you. Your husband is a traitor. So then, <sighs> fine, I'm going to Google the heck out of you. So I did. And I saw her husband's LinkedIn account. Um, he is a retired special operations officer. 
And his picture on LinkedIn is his DA photo, which is not allowed, by the way. But anyway, he works for a contractor. He works in the office of the um, Secretary of Defense. And I can see on LinkedIn all the things he liked. And oh, my word, no one who likes those things should be working in the office of Secretary of Defense because they weren't true. (laughs) They weren't true. I mean, you know, it's, it's easily verifiable lies and propaganda. I'm not talking about beliefs. If you said, I believe Donald Trump is the best president ever, that's fine. Free, free country. You can think those things. But when you start promoting lies, that's where there's a problem. And you know, and and I would say the same about teachers. If you can somehow separate that, but if you come to work and you are in any way talking about these things that are lies, and you know somehow either sewing, um, you know, teaching teaching that to children, um, or discriminating against individuals, groups of people, that's a problem. And you've just highlighted and spotlighted yourself that that's where your true, you know your true beliefs are. That's a problem. <laughs> well, Andrew, I have an idea because you know how if, if you have, if your transactions, oh, let's say your uh, Florida condo real estate transactions throw up red flags, you're required to report those to FinCEN at the Treasury, right? Now, we don't get to see those publicly. I mean, some of them leaked over the, <laughs> over the last few years, but we don't get to see those publicly. But if there were some sort of database, and we could do this probably only for federal stuff, like uh, we could re- report them to the Department of Education. We could report them to the Pentagon. We could report them to federal agencies uh, as as being on this, uh, you know, danger list. Um, I think that that uh, might be a deterrent, Andrew. But I mean, another possible deterrent is to be able to name them domestic terror organizations. Uh, now, we, we there's a downside to that because that can be abused uh, to name, you know, things like Antifa or whatever as a, as a terrorist organization. Um, and we saw Trump kind of try to do that by saying anarchistic jurisdictions uh, in, you know, specific legal language that allows you to amp up sort of uh, the, the law enforcement response. But when Canada named the Proud Boys a terrorist organization, they had they dissolved. So, I mean, there there is something to it, but I think that there has to be, we have to be careful about how we go about it, right? Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's ex- exactly correct. And, um, y- you know, there is, there's always that fine line when you're gathering information for domestic intelligence purposes and, uh, you know, <laughs> you are gathering it on right-wing people who have an ideology that is naturally skeptical and suspicious of government gathering information in the first place, right? So, you know, I I really liked Rachel's um, dividing line of, you know, you sort of began your answer with, I I don't want to dox anybody, right? (laughs) And and I think that's, and I think that's right, that like, we need to figure out a way in this space to, you know, preserve the rights for individuals to hold contrary beliefs, you know, <laughs> like the way you put it, you know, to, to think, uh, uh, although it's hard for me to track that thought process that, you know, Donald Trump is a fantastic president. <laughs> like, that's fine, right? We're, we're not talking about uh, persecuting individuals on the basis of their ideology. We are talking about when that idea, and it seems to me in, in two key areas, right? Like number one, when the ideology crosses into action, right? Uh, and number two, uh, when 
um, you know, in, in, in the law, you have the, the concept of, of where you have an expectation of privacy. Um, your, your previous answer, right? It was talking about things that people are voluntarily uh, doing on social media, right? The, the things that they like, the things that they post, you know, the, the groups with which they associate, um, you know, that's not, it, 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 it seems to me that it's very hard to make the argument that, you know, you're, uh, infringing on someone's, you know, private space that you're using Gestapo tactics or, you know, when all the things they said about Obama, uh, when we're talking about things that you've, you know, publicly put out there for, for mass consumption. A hundred percent. I also, you know, anyone who's filled out an SF-86, there's nothing private on it. You know, I mean, you're putting it all out there and you're saying it's fair game. I remember the first time when um, Alex and I were married and I was interviewed for his recertification and the questions that he asked. And then, of course, when we were at the embassy of Moscow, lots of background checks, small group of people. So I felt like I had one every couple of weeks or something for someone and, and very perfunctory. But the questions they ask you. If I had someone in my life, I'm not the decision maker, but if I had someone sort of espousing these views, I might say, I'm not sure if they should have, you know, a clearance. You're going to have to look further into this, but do I have reason to think maybe they shouldn't? Yeah. I mean, you know, that's, that's not when you're interviewed, it's not your final determination, but as I think they ask everyone that question, do you know anything about this person that should prevent them from receiving a security clearance? And if these things are going to be on the table and it's going to be part of the discussion, then that's an issue. Of course we did. Yeah. And that's kind of what I was getting at with the federal agencies stuff. When I used the FinCEN example is, you know, when the FBI does a background check on you for a government position, they should be able to ping some sort of a database that shows your public thoughts on, on, on this kind of a thing, because we can actually, you know, not hire you because you uh, are uh, in a domestic violent extremist group. Uh, we can't stifle your speech if it hasn't led to action, but those things can be determinative in whether or not you get a job with a federal government, uh, or at least they should be. It can be determinative if you whether or not you're uh, receive Senate confirmation for cabinet positions. Yeah, that would be helpful. I mean, you know, or whether you can work in the State Department like Federico Klein, who yeah. had his <laughs> hearing this morning. I mean, you know, it's just it it has to be OK for both sides. And if they say that tweets mean tweets <laughs> and that that shows an an effort not to, you know, want to be bipartisan or, you know, work in good faith, if if that can if that can be true, then supporting an organization like Proud Boys or uh, you know Oath Keepers, then that should be the same. So, yeah, and at the very least, you could you could instead of preemptively doing it just because someone espouses these these beliefs, if they have taken action, if they did participate in the insurrection, like you were talking about the no fly list, they should at the very least be on uh, a list, and that and that would pop up in a background investigation simply for the fact that they were arrested. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you know. Um, so, but you know, I I it's a it is a fine line to walk between you know one a liberty and uh, protecting us from from sure. DBE. I mean, it's you know, I I always say everything you know with a caveat of you know having lived in Russia and having you know been the uh, 
just as a diplomat, there's nothing special about us. This is just the way they do things. Um, you know, things are watched, what you say, what you do, just as a matter of routine. And, you know, but but I had friends, Russian friends, who presumably would never have been, you know, faced that kind of scrutiny. And they would not say things in cars, in houses, with cell phones around, you know. I mean, they might say them on the street. But this this fear lives on from, you know, Soviet times. It, and these are young people who were not even alive during Soviet. Some of them, not all, but, you know, who weren't even alive then. We don't want to live like that in the United States. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, I, although I am a big proponent of gun control, I do understand the argument of, you know, we don't want to take all our rights away for other things. Now, that argument is unfortunately way overused and it's silly the way it's used in, in so many different contexts. But the spirit of it is good. It's just the implication that I have a problem with. And we have to be very careful. I, and if we're going back and forth constantly between Republicans and Democrats, if that's the way it's going to be, you know, just like with the, getting rid of the filibuster. I mean, we have to really think about what are the second and third order effects if someone else is in in power, if a different party is in power, you know, and we don't have adults in the room. Because, you know, quite frankly, we're dealing with a group of people who are okay not to follow norms. And, and this kind of goes back to our early discussion. Yes, normally the government, they would set up a commission, they would think about it, they would do all of this. We don't have time to do that. And when you have one group who is not playing by the norms, who has thrown that all out the window, but you're over here trying to just do business as usual in white shirts and red ties and everything has to be normal, it's not going to work. I mean, I'm not saying get down and dirty because when you wrestle with pigs, everyone gets muddy. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's the same and it's true. But you've got to be realistic. And so there has to be some protectionist also, you know, to make sure that we don't just burn everything down, um, you know, and, and make sure that the system can survive. But that being said, you know, we're still fighting. I mean, I'm, I'm love that you are doing this podcast and, you know, continuing to do to talk about these issues. Um as you know, I, I'm a host of a new podcast called The Suburban Women Problem on Red, Wine, and Blue. And that's that's sort of our mission, too. But I think everyone, everyone who voted for Joe Biden needs to know the fight is not over. We've got to go out there and we've got to continue fighting. Fight for what you believe in. Not everyone is going to have the same goals in mind. To you know, They don't have the same views. That's okay. But... We've, the fight is not over and everyone's tired and a little hungover from the four years in the election, <laughs> but we've got to keep talking about these issues. It can't only be something that's done with special counsels. Regular people need to engage and understand the implications of all of this. Yeah, agreed. Apathy is what got us Trump in the first place. Yeah, so. yeah. Re- really, really well said. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I have one other quick, tiny question before you go. And I couldn't I couldn't let you go without asking you this, because today, <laughs> Wednesday, uh, Christopher Miller is testifying uh, about uh, his role or whatever in the in the insurrection. I'm specifically Was he even there. 
mean, maybe he was just on vacation or something. Well, I, I'm specifically interested in that memo that he wrote on January 4th saying, no one can share anything. You can't have guns, no helmets for you, no shields, and you can't talk and don't touch anyone. And just, you know, I mean, it was just absolutely ridiculous. Uh, now, Chris Miller served on National Security Council from March 2018 to December 2019. That's an interesting time period that you might have some insight in. And I was wondering if you had any insight into Christopher Miller from from his time on the National Security Council. I don't, except that, you know, both my husband and my brother-in-law worked with him and knew who he was and didn't have much to say one way or another. They were, I think, pretty shocked when he was appointed acting secretary of defense because there was nothing, you know, that would indicate anything, um, no reason for him to have that job. I think now we can see why he had that job, um, with our good friend, Kash Patel, um, (laughs) also there and, um, you know, other people, it was again, the same 15 characters on a rotating basis, but, you know, it's possible that Christopher Miller was put in there because he was not one of the same characters. He was a little bit unknown and didn't come with all the baggage, but he was a loyalist. He was willing to say and do whatever they told him to do to advance himself. Um, and, uh, you know, I've been pretty outspoken about how I feel about, uh, you know, a lot of the general officers at the Pentagon. I mean, I think the same goes for, a lot of the appointed officials, um, everyone's just trying, was, especially in the Trump administration, was just trying to buy their time, not make any waves, get out and get their, you know, at least $500,000 for many of them, much more job in the military industrial complex. And that's definitely what Christopher Miller was setting himself up to do with no reason for him to be there. I don't think that's going to work out for him, to be clear. I think that we've turned a corner on this. I think we have. I think that's why there's so many generals in the Pentagon now who just don't want to say anything. They don't want to do anything. They didn't during Trump. They don't now. They're just waiting to get out and get those jobs. And um, the tr- the actual Trump-appointed officials, they're really, they're. I mean, as we can see, they're continuing to struggle because companies are like, we don't want this. We don't. And this is really, this is an inflection point. This is a turning point. I mean, it's it's sort of niche for DOD, but it's huge. Um, you know, it is, it's huge to see that something that was always one way. I know it's in other appointed positions as well, but um, that people don't want to hire these Trump people. I mean, I think they'll still get jobs, but nothing like what they <laughs> thought they were going to get when they worked in government at this yeah. level. Nothing. But I, I don't have an in terms of Christopher Miller, you know, exactly. I don't know. I think he was like this innocuous guy who could just sort of pass and I'm like, oh, he was in the army once. I mean, he was, a, I think, a Fulbright colonel and you know, he retired. But I think it was like, oh, what about him? He's left and maybe he can do it. But basically as a puppet, I mean, I'm curious to see what he says. <laughs> yeah. Me too. You, you, you said you said my trigger word, which is Cash Patel, uh, which could, could keep us going for another hour, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, especially that new reporting uh, that he was supposed to take the place of Bowditch. And, and uh, people who listen to Mueller, she wrote back in late 2017, know what I call the Comey Five, uh, which ended up being the Comey Six because of Dana Buente. But uh, those were the six people that Comey shared his spontaneous notes with. And they 
all just mysteriously were fired or shoved behind a ficus plant <laughs> in HR or or whatever. But Bowditch held out, uh, and apparently he he was on the rocks too with Chris Ray. But uh, any any final questions uh, for Rachel Andrew while we've got her? Like I said, I would uh, I would I would keep her here for another week and a half. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for coming in. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. And um, you know, I hope I hope. A lot of what we talked about, I hope this stuff is implemented because, yeah. uh, you know, that we can find a way, a practical way um, within our government to be able to work and um, make this work for everyone, but make it safer for everyone. We've got to go forward together. 100%. It is our government. Um, so everybody follow Rachel on Twitter at NatSec Hobbyist. And please listen to The Suburban Women Problem, your new podcast. You got to talk to Heather Cox Richardson, <laughs> oh, yes. and I'm super jealous. It's uh, Wednesday, and it was so awesome. And my husband was jealous. My husband's never jealous of me. So, you know. Yeah, he never wanted to poke his head in when we had an interview. Tell him what's up with that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> You're on his list. The book is going to come out eventually. Eventually, DOD is going to approve it. We've already like canceled all of our summer plans eight times, but eventually it's going to get approved. And he is definitely, I put this li- this podcast on the list, or, or maybe Melissa, M- M- I don't know, but he's going to do it. I you can do both. Yeah. Okay, yeah. 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 It's a podcast. You can do both. Yeah, yeah sure can. I promise. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Rachel Vindman, everyone. Thanks. Take care. Everybody, we'll be right back. You're listening to The Bureau with Frank Figluzzi. I'm former FBI Assistant Director Frank Figluzzi. Join me on a journey deep inside the world's premier law enforcement agency to decode the mysteries and challenges of today's FBI. The threats facing America are as real as the men and women who battle to protect us. In this first-of-a-kind podcast, we'll sit down with active-duty FBI personnel who reveal their mission, their cases, and their lives. Let's go inside the Bureau with Frank Figluzzi. Homicides, sexual assaults, missing persons, and unidentified human remains. These cases are connected. 93 homicides. Somehow a computer could solve crime. I would be lying to you if I said I wasn't much more aware of the guy sitting in a vehicle on the roadside when I'm walking my dog at night. The sexual assault kit initiative. Unsolved cases sitting in evidence rooms on shelves. Everybody, welcome back. And it's time for comings and goings, but we don't really have a comprehensive list of comings and goings today. Everyone sort of stayed put. So I thought I'd mention a really good resource you can use to follow along with us that indicates the scope of the job that's in front of us. You, <laughs> it's not messing around. The Washington Post has the Biden appointee tracker. And uh, it's at uh, WashingtonPost.com slash politics slash interactive slash 2020 slash Biden dash appointee dash tracker. We're going to have a link for that in the show description for you. Yeah, it is a fantastic resource. So look, what they're doing is they've identified 792 key executive branch appointments. They are, or, oh, I, look, as a data geek, I love this, right? They are organized by 
uh, which executive branch agency it is, right? And from the top down, right? So, you know, where there is a secretary, uh, where there is a deputy secretary, general counsel, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, and these are all PAS positions, right? So they all require confirmation by the Senate. Um, there are, uh, like, I looked at it, I've read that, there there are about 1,200 overall positions that require that are PAS positions, right? I just happened to that. So I, I don't know who's in those, like, 400 and some that are, like, you have to be a- approved by the Senate, but you're not key to the Washington Post. But anyway, so <laughs> of those 792, right now, Biden has picked 199. So we're about a quarter of the way done. Of those 199, 45 have actually been confirmed by the Senate, uh, and 148 more are in the pipeline. And 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 that leaves six positions that Biden has named via press release, but you know, not filed the paperwork to formally nominate them to the Senate. And and if you're wondering, there's a little graph there in the Washington Post that like compares it to previous administrations, right? If you've got an Uncle Frank who's saying like, well, see, I, I told you, you know, that impeachment would prevent, you know, them from doing anything and the Democrat and basically like uh, Biden is kind of right in the middle of where presidents are by May. Right. So, you know, to the extent that there was any delay, they've caught up. Yeah. And I was going to say that's really impressive considering how how they were delayed. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Hamstrung at every step of the way. Uh, And there are 242 holdovers. Mm. Um, Those are either appointees who serve for a fixed term or their career civil servants left over from the previous administration where there hasn't been a disclosed reason to kick them out. Or uh, sometime, sometimes even earlier, like U.S. representatives to the U.N. Conference on Disarmament, Robert A. Wood, who served in that position since 2014. Yeah, good for him. So <laughs> uh, if, like me, you're doing the math in your head, uh, you would come up with 351 positions for which there is no nominee, right? about 40 percent. Um, and so some of these are like... The ambassador to police, right? Now, look, I'm not running down, right? No offense to whomever becomes ambassador to police. And and President Biden, if you'd like to consider me for ambassador to police, uh, mm. you, you, you know how to get a hold of me. I'm totally down. Is there an ambassador to the Maldives? I'll do that, uh, that too. That sounds really good. Yeah. Uh, but, but look, there are some really, really mission critical jobs here um, that are, are going to require being filled ASAP, right? So the FCC is missing both a board member and an IG, right? Like, that's bad. Um, the the EEOC is missing its general counsel, right? Like so, so these are really, really important jobs that are yet to be filled. Yeah, and so about 351 of them by your math, that means we're going to be doing the D block on comings and goings <laughs> for the foreseeable future. Maybe we'll have them all filled by the time the next election happens. <laughs> uh, at least at least we know we'll have good content here for the uh, closing segment on the show. Absolutely. Well, this has been abs- just, I, I can't even get over Rachel Vinman. She's such a gem. Oh, she's, she's great. You have to follow her on Twitter at nat- Natsec Hobbyist. And I'm, I'm really interested in her show, The Suburban Women Project. That's amazing. Uh, And uh, it's been great uh, hanging out with you today, Andrew. I think we covered a lot of territory. Yeah, as always. And and again, I I just sincerely want to thank you in in, in the B Block. Um, Very, very hard subject matter. uh, And I appreciate you um, 
your openness in telling your story. And, um, and I think you're just such a, a tremendous voice uh, on these issues. So keep that up, please. Well, thank you. Something, something I've learned throughout that whole process is that letting people know that they're not alone is probably the most critical thing you can do for them and yourself. So anyway, thank you very much. I've been AG. I'm Andrew, and we will see you next Wednesday. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres and is engineered and edited by Mackenzie Mazzell and Starburns Audio. Fact-checking and research by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with quality assurance and media by Muller She Wrote LLC. Branding design and logo by Starburns Audio and Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. And our copy is written by Jesse Egan. Our music is written and recorded by Adam Orr and Christopher Hoffey and our opening sequence is designed by Allison Gill and mixed by Mackenzie Mazzell and Starburns Audio. Follow us on Twitter at Aisle45Pod and listen wherever you get your podcasts.